Even though we live abroad, as women of Indian origin, we have a common thread that binds us together because of our strong cultural background. NRA Women is a platform for women to share their stories and experiences on various topics. Our podcast is about inspiring NRA women and their amazing stories. Some of the stories we've covered include growing up in a joint family in India, adopting a child as a single woman, and rebuilding one's life after the loss of a child. Take a listen. We hope you'll be inspired or learn something new. I'm Bettina. And I'm Lenora. And we're the voices behind NRI Woman Podcast. We're all heart. Just look for NRI Woman wherever you get your podcasts or find us at nriwoman.com. New episodes come out every Monday. Make sure you subscribe. If you're looking for something different, Murder Mile covers the untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders in London's West End. It's researched using the original police investigation files, it's presented as a dramatisation, and it focuses on the victims' lives in an honest, detailed and sympathetic way. Murder Mile is about life, not lunatics. So if you love true crime stories about real murders by regular people in everyday places, then Murder Mile is just for you. Murder Mile was nominated one of the best British true crime podcasts of 2018. So if you love things a little bit different, try Murder Mile. True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the True Crime Fix podcast with Stevie B. Hi everyone, and welcome to Case 11. This case was a suggestion in the True Crime Fix discussion Facebook page by Scarlett White. Thank you Scarlett for recommending this to me. I plan to do more cases that are recommended by my listeners, as you seem to pick fantastic ones that end up engulfing me as I delve further down the proverbial rabbit hole. A little bit of reference for this case. Wonder if any of you have read the book or seen the film The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins. The story of, coincidentally in this case, a woman by the name of Rachel watching the people on her journey into London every day and ending up trying to be someone she isn't to fit in. I refer to that story because the reason why the book is such a gripping read is that the story is told from so many points of view in order to explain why things happen and almost create a 3D shape. But as a film, it does not quite create the mystique of that. For those that have not read The Girl on the Train, I think the best comparison would be the way that the story is told in the series Breaking Bad. 
where things happen when the build-up is explained in later episodes and you have a light bulb moment as all becomes apparent the further you get in the story. It's like that with this case, where the more you unpick what appears to be a straightforward runaway teen case, the more snippets that are revealed send you off in another direction you were not expecting. Because of the way that the case is, it's not going to be a straightforward A to Z build-up. We may be, for example, going N-O-P in a logical order, and then without warning skip back to D or E to tell a certain part of the story from a perspective different from the initial narrative. It is one that if you're tired or your brain is not fully functional yet, I would delay listening to until you're able to fully concentrate on who is who and where is where. I've done my best to lay it out as simply as I can, but because this story is like an onion with so many different layers, sometimes the odd person or piece is mentioned as a point of reference who has not been spoken about in context before. Just advance warning, this story contains crimes against a teenager, so please listen at your own discretion. So if everybody's ready, ladies and gentlemen, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this episode has been written in memory of Rachel Barber. Rachel Elizabeth Barber was born on the 12th of September 1983 to Mother Elizabeth and Father Michael Barber in Glenalvey, Australia. Rachel was the eldest of three children and had two sisters, Heather, who was six years younger than her, and Ashley Rose, who was ten years younger than her. Glenalvey is a small town located on the Basque Coast in the state of Victoria. The population, as of 2016, was 165 people and there were 69 private dwellings, so it was a town where everybody knew everybody. In early 1993, the Barber family moved to Montalbert, which is 12 kilometres from the centre of Melbourne. Rachel was described as being strikingly attractive with a dancer's body. She had very pale skin, which appeared to be clear of the usual teenage blemishes of acne. She had what is described as beautiful green eyes and expressed herself by dyeing her hair lots of different colours. In December 1997, the Barber family moved to Bayswater North. At the start of 1998, Rachel commenced casual dance classes at the Dance Factory in Richmond. Her parents allowed her creativity to flow and encouraged her to follow her dreams. A fan of classical music since her early childhood, Rachel possessed the required potential for a career on stage and in front of the camera. It is not surprising that Rachel had an artistic side. Her grandfather on her mother's side was Ivan Southall, who was a famous Australian author responsible for over 40 works of fiction and non-fiction. Her uncle, Andrew Southall, was also an artist and a writer. 
She wasn't interested in schoolwork, but had a talent for dancing, recalled her mother, Elizabeth Barber. We decided to allow Rachel to pursue what she was talented at. She was very talented at classical ballet, but being a typical teenager, she rebelled and gave up a few times, but she always returned. She tried modelling as well, but her passion was always music and dance. To the extent that after consulting Rachel's mother, the artistic director, Dolce Lee, offered Rachel a full scholarship at the dance factory. As a result, Rachel dropped out of school early in the third term of year nine, which is between the ages of 13 and 14, to pursue her career in dance full time. Rachel had given herself the stage name Rachel Starr. The Dance Factory Studio was opened in 1982 and first established a full-time course in 1985. This allowed students to focus on their performance and technique around other subjects. Dance Factory alumni have found their place throughout the West End in London, Broadway in New York, Asia and virtually every major musical production in Australian theatre. Shortly after starting at school, a fellow student by the name of Emmanuel Carella caught Rachel's eye. Emmanuel was the same age as Rachel, and the two started a relationship. Classmates were soon calling the pair Romeo and Juliet, despite the fact that Rachel's mother approved of the relationship. She wrote in her book that you would not wish your daughter to meet a nicer young man. Even with spending a lot of time at stage school, Rachel was still close to her sisters and often directed plays at home for her sisters to perform in. Rachel lived for theatrics and dance and just loved to perform. On the afternoon of Sunday, the 28th of February, 1999, it was just like any other for the Barber family. Rachel had been speaking to someone on the phone at length but as she was a teenage girl and spent a lot of time speaking to her friends on the phone anyway, Michael and Elizabeth left her to it. Little did they know that this would be the last night that the Barber family would spend together. The next morning, Monday the 1st of March, Michael Barber drove Rachel to the tram stop at the corner of Riversdale and Elgar Roads, which is in the suburb of Wattle Park, to catch the tram to Richmond. Rachel had left her home in the morning wearing her black dance pants, black sports bra, a light-coloured singlet top, a long-sleeved grey hooded top. She was also carrying a black dance bag. As for jewellery, she was wearing a gold necklace with a diamond-like stone and matching earrings a blue topaz ring which Emmanuel had given her as a commitment ring for Christmas. She left home with about $13 in her wallet. Love you, Mum! Rachel screamed out of the window of her dad's car as she raced off to the tram stop for the day's rehearsals. She was dropped off at the tram stop at about 9.30am. 
Rachel had arranged to have breakfast at her friend Kylie Ellis's house, which was her regular routine prior to class. Before boarding the tram for Richmond, she made arrangements to meet her dad back at the Wattle Park tram stop at 6.15pm so that he could give her a lift home. Rachel was described as guarded during that day, telling her dance classmates that she had to work that night and it was going to pay well and that she would get some new clothes from it. Her friends assumed that it was a modelling job. Rachel's parents were not well off, so the new things would have been a luxury for her. Emmanuel questioned his girlfriend as to what her plans were and she told him not to worry about it, but revealed that she had been offered a job where she was going to be given some new clothes and a substantial amount of money. It was strange that she was so secretive about it, Emmanuel said a few years later in an interview. He too assumed that it was a modelling job, but Rachel either did not know the full details of the job, or she was reluctant to tell him. He told her to be careful after class and kissed her goodbye. Rachel informed Emmanuel that she would call him afterwards to let him know how it had gone. That evening, Rachel's tram pulled into the station at 6.15pm and her father was there to pick her up as she had arranged. But Rachel was not on the tram. Confused as she was usually so punctual, Michael just assumed that she had missed the tram and waited for the next one. When Rachel was not on that one, Michael became more concerned. As this was 1999 and mobile telephones were not as commonplace for everyone, he was unable to call his daughter. When she had still not arrived by 7.40pm, Michael called his wife Elizabeth to inform her that Rachel had not arrived. By this time, he had made his way to his parents' house in the Blackburn suburb of Melbourne. Elizabeth panicked as this behaviour was not something which was normal for Rachel and called around all of her friends and the dance studio looking for her. Eventually she called Emmanuel, who responded with, I cannot believe she actually went. When Rachel inquired further, Emmanuel relayed what he knew to her. Elizabeth was shocked as Rachel had not told them about a job earlier. From the information that Elizabeth picked up from Rachel's friends, a picture of Rachel's day was starting to come together. Rachel went to Kylie's flat in Richmond in the morning as planned, where she met her boyfriend Emmanuel Corella and his brother Dominic. At around 10.15am, Rachel, Kylie and the Corella brothers left to attend dance classes at the dance factory. Rachel made a point of avoiding travelling on public transport unless she was familiar with the route. During the afternoon of the 1st of March, Rachel had told a fellow student by the name of Andrews that she was going to make a lot of money that evening and that it was with somebody that Andrews did not know. Rachel indicated to Andrews that she would explain to him the next day what it was all about. 
Later, during one of their lunch breaks, Rachel and Emmanuel took a walk down Swan Street. When walking past the shop window, Rachel pointed out to Emmanuel a pair of shoes described as chunky blue wedges that the 1990s British pop band The Spice Girls would wear. They cost $100 and Rachel said to him that she would purchase them the next day. This is when she revealed to him that she was off to do that job that night and she was going to earn a heap of money. Although, at this point, she said that she could not go into specifics, she said that she was meeting up with an old female friend. At around 4pm, Rachel asked Dominic Carella for a lift to Bridge Road after classes had finished. Bridge Road was a tram stop which was situated about a mile north of the school. Dominic agreed. At around 5.35pm, following the completion of her classes for the day, Rachel, together with Kylie and fellow classmates, left the dance factory and walked along Church Street towards Bridge Road. Dominic asked Rachel if she still required that lift and she responded that she would make her own way there. Another classmate, Tamara Gunn, asked Rachel where she was going and she responded that she was going to walk up to Bridge Road and her father was going to pick her up from the end of the tram line. Tamara offered to walk with her to the stop, but Rachel declined the offer. Rachel was last seen by her classmates at around 5.45pm walking on the western side of Church Street towards Bridge Road. At around 8pm, Elizabeth rang Box Hill Police Station and reported Rachel missing. The police asked for all the personal details and then inquired how long Rachel had been missing for. Elizabeth states in her book, Perfect Victim, They didn't exactly laugh, but I had the feeling that they thought I was overreacting. Police informed Elizabeth if Michael could not trace her during his searches that he was doing, then he was to go to the station and complete a missing persons report. At 8.45pm, when Michael had finished his search of the streets of the suburb of Camberwell, which is a leafy middle-class area of Melbourne, he made his way to Box Hill Police Station to make the initial missing persons report. Michael explained to the police that he was not overreacting to a teenager running away as his daughter hated the dark and struggled with taking public transport on her own. He said if she was stranded she would somehow find a way to a phone by now for a lift. The police suggested to Michael that they get torches at night and check under the house as she might be camping out under there. When Michael returned home, Elizabeth's mother, Joy Southall, had arrived at the barber's to take care of their two youngest girls as Elizabeth and Michael left to search around the Richmond suburb where Rachel went to school. Richmond is a busy inner city suburb where the Melbourne cricket ground is. 
Elizabeth stated. Our searching was pointless. We had no idea where she was. The story that she had told Manny already reeked of foul play. Rachel had been baited with the equivalent of a bag of sweets a small child is warned about. The following morning, Tuesday the 2nd of March, Rachel did not turn up for her daily breakfast at Kylie's flat. After Elizabeth and Michael had dropped off Heather and Ashley Rose to school, they returned back to the Box Hill Police Station to seek further advice on their missing daughter. After initially being dismissed by the duty officer on the desk, the barbers met with the desk sergeant from the night before, who got the report he had taken off of a rack in the back office. A rack, Michael thought, which meant that no one had looked at the report since it had been taken the night before. They left photos with the sergeant, who told them he was confident that Rachel would turn up on her own accord. The barbers were also told that the police were limited with what they could do, as Rachel had been missing for less than 48 hours. Rachel failed to attend the classes for the day, and she also failed to contact Emmanuel, something that she had done every night for 10 months. As a result of the lack of interest from the police at this point, Elizabeth went to the school to see if she could find out any further information. She met up with Emmanuel, and they went to the shoe shop in Swan Street, where Rachel had been the day before. They basically started their own investigation. The shopkeeper remembered Rachel and still had the shoes put to one side for her. The shopkeeper pretty much repeated verbatim what Emmanuel had said had gone on between the couple in the shop. It was then that Emmanuel remembered that Rachel had mentioned that the work that she was getting was from an old female friend. The exact words that she used were, the work was not going to be anything immoral because of her old female friend. Elizabeth tried to remember all of Rachel's older friends from all of her old schools and the dance studios. Elizabeth and Michael went from store to store with Rachel's photograph. Most of the shopkeepers recognised Rachel but none could confirm whether they had seen her in the last two days. During the investigation, Michael spoke to a shop owner who pointed out an article in Age magazine. It was concerning an ex-convict who had been released from prison and was attempting to coerce underage girls into an illegal brothel in Fitzroy. The type of girl who was being approached matched Rachel's description. As a result of the concern, Elizabeth decided to call SWAP, or the Sex Workers Outreach Project. SWAP is Australia's largest and longest established community-based peer education sex worker organisation focused on HIV, STIs and Hepatitis C prevention, education and health promotion for sex workers in Victoria. Elizabeth's fears were reduced slightly when she was advised that due to Rachel's age, it was highly unlikely that she had been abducted for sale, 
as she was too old for the ex-convict and too young to be working legitimately, but they advised that they would keep an eye out for anybody matching her description. Concern grew again the following day, the 3rd of March, when Rachel's wallet was located in her locker at the dance factory. It was found to contain $1.20 in change and the used tram ticket from the morning of the 1st of March. The fact that Rachel had left her wallet started to indicate that what happened to her was not her voluntarily running away. On the 5th of March, the police arrived at the barber house to see if there were any clues in Rachel's bedroom. Although the search did not pick up anything, Michael used the police's attendance to raise a concern about one of Elizabeth's work colleagues who had been bothering them in recent times. He would do what Michael described as nuisance phone calls as well as having been caught peeking through their windows. The man also would turn up at their house uninvited. Michael told a story of the man actually gaining entry to the house while Elizabeth was in the shower after having a swim. Elizabeth, in no uncertain terms, had told him to go away. The police did not seem overly concerned, so the barbers decided that they would put their own surveillance on the individual. Ultimately, though, through their own investigation, it was obvious that this man was not involved. Rachel's family, including extended family, continued to search the local swamps and wastelands for Rachel. Over the next week, the police started their investigation, interviewing friends, family and people who she went to school with. Thousands of posters of Rachel were put up all over Melbourne. The investigation had been picked up by the missing persons unit based out of St Kilda, so the barbers felt that they were starting to be taken seriously now. The unit's first act was to make a call to the Victoria Media Liaison Team to ensure that Rachel's story was on the front page of every newspaper in the state the following day. They started by searching through the CCTV footage at the main Camberwell railway station to see if Rachel had either run away or was abducted through there, but the search ended up coming up with no leads. As part of the initial investigation, the police questioned Elizabeth and Michael about whether Rachel had been acting strange on the 28th of February. Elizabeth recalled that during that evening, Rachel had spent a lot of time on the telephone. She suspected that it had been Emmanuel whom she had been speaking to, but she was not sure. The police also interrogated Emmanuel as to whether Rachel had run away due to the fact that she was pregnant. An awkward conversation with a teenage boy, who then had to describe his limited sexual encounters with Rachel, which meant that the police could rule that out. The police were able to obtain the telephone call charge records for the evening of the 28th of February, which revealed that two calls were made from a home phone number in Paran at 5.24pm, that call lasting 15 minutes and 27 seconds, and later at 5.45pm, 
that call lasting 29 minutes and 42 seconds. The call surprised the barbers as they were not aware of anybody who lived there. When police did the initial check on the phone number, they learnt that it belonged to Caroline Robertson. Caroline was working a desk job with a communications company on St Kilda Road in Melbourne. On the 10th of March, the police attempted to contact Caroline Robertson at her place of work, but they were informed that she was off sick. They decided to try and contact her by phone at her home address, which was again unsuccessful. When the police asked the barbers if they knew a Caroline Robertson, the name did not ring a bell, but Elizabeth did explain that they knew a Caroline Reed, who used to babysit the children when they used to live in Mont Albert. Her name had been on the second list of acquaintances which had been given to the police. At one time, Elizabeth said that they had been really good friends with the Reeds as they lived across the road from them and she had actually helped out Caroline's mother, Gail, when she was going through a messy divorce, but they had not seen Caroline for years. It was then that Michael remembered that he had taken Ashley Rose to Caroline's younger sister's birthday party a few weeks prior. Caroline had spoken to Rachel at length through the car window whilst he was dropping Ashley Rose to the front door. Things were starting to fall into place when a witness came forward on the 11th of March. At around 6.40pm on the day that she went missing, Rachel was seen by Alison Gubrek getting onto a tram at the intersection of High Street and Chapel Street in Paran. Paran is three miles south of Richmond when where she was supposed to be meeting her dad was eight miles east of Richmond. She was seen in the company of an older girl. They both got off when the tram stopped at the corner of Williams Road and High Street. Overhearing the two girls' conversation, it was obvious that they knew each other and Rachel did not appear to be under any duress. Alison mentioned that Rachel was seen laughing and joking about her boyfriend and her cats. Rachel was, however, completely the other end of Melbourne from where she had arranged to meet her father. Alison assisted the police to compile a photo-fit image of the girl she saw in the company of Rachel. The image matched that of Caroline. Had Rachel simply run off with Caroline? And if she had, why had she? The idea that Rachel could be with Caroline brought a small bit of brief comfort to the barbers. After several unsuccessful attempts on March the 12th to talk to Caroline, police gained entry to her flat and found her apparently unconscious next to an empty bottle of Tegretol which she took for her epilepsy. Police noticed that the flat was untidy and had the appearance that Caroline was preparing to move. Upon searching her flat, police found a bag of clothes that were in size 8 and would not have fit Caroline, but would have fit Rachel. 
they also found a number of journals and scrapbooks. But there was no sign of Rachel. To be continued in episode 12. Due to the length of this story, I'm not going to be able to record it all in one go. Therefore, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry, but this story is going to have to be continued. I was contemplating waiting a whole week for the second part. Then I thought to myself, I'm not as evil as HBO and George R. Martin. Therefore, I'm going to conclude the story tomorrow. Please remember, if you enjoy the show or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod. That's at True Crime Fix Pod on Twitter. I'll be posting the information about the week's case on there. I also have an Instagram account, so search True Crime Fix. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at True Crime Fix Podcast. That's True Crime Fix Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest, because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone.